Here we are at Overthrow Boxing Club, one of the hubs of uh, New York City, architecturally, and there's a lot of history in this building. Take us on a little a trip down memory lane, find out how we got here. Hmm. How deep do you want to go? Man, I was born and raised in the Lower East Side, so I'm a New Yorican. So I've been traveling around the streets, just visiting different projects. I was always like a mediator by default, because I would be cool with one person from one project, somebody else from another project, and they may have had beef with each other, but then we would be show up at a spot and they would both come to say what's up to me, and it was like, it ain't that serious. So early on, I was already like delving into activism or being an advocate of some sort, because I cared about people. Like I had that passion in me from early on. So it wasn't like something that I discovered later on in my life. So the journey begins in the Lower East Side, playing in the amphitheater. Um, it was an abandoned house back in the days. Um, so you had a lot of unhoused that lived there. We used to play tag, we used to run around and, and be in the FDR Drive. And I had a little bit of previous history in the FDR Drive and the amphitheater because my dad was a boxer. And so he would take me to the FDR Drive, the East River Park to run around while he was doing his training. So I already had that connection. And then as I got a little older, I would be able to go outside and play with my friends. And then we made our way to the East River, but this time it was for a little bit of mischief. You know, I, my friends used to tag on the walls and I wasn't too good at writing graffiti, so I would be like, can you write my name on the wall, write me, you know, that kind of thing. And we used to just be like running around and just having a good old time in the park. And then as I got older, that became my stomping grounds as I started frequenting the East River track and I started a running uh, exercise group and with a couple of other people and we called ourselves LES, Leaders of Endurance and Strength. And we would do like plyometric drills and we would like teach people how to like be a little bit fast and work on their speed. I met a guy or I knew someone who, by the name of Mike Sace, who started a group, they didn't have the name yet, but they would be running around the streets, like after the clubs, they would hang out and they would be a little bit tipsy, but they would still manage to run around, run on bridges, run on the street. Eventually, he made his way to where we, we were doing our exercise group on Tuesday nights and he joined our group and we started like working out together. I knew him from the club days because I also used to promote parties, but I used to promote parties by handing out flyers and stapling posters onto the light posts and things like that. And we used to frequent the same places, but we didn't know that we were both into some kind of like health or fitness. And so when we connected, eventually what my group and his group became as they merged together was what eventually got known as Bridge Runners. So Bridge Runners is a global running community um, about 17 and a half years ago now and it all started in the Lower East Side. It was just like us running around and just socially and just hanging out and kind of like having fun in that way. And so I say that at that time, Mike and I connected 
and he had his thing called Bridge Runners happening, but it wasn't until years later that I ended up in this place. Now, there's a lot more that we can get into because it's a big gap of me being involved in hosting shows and meeting a lot of different people, different artists. Um, so we could kind of like go into that journey, but at whatever sequence you want to do it. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, but I think that's why our audience is interested and why we're so interested in hearing more about your story. Is it seems like you've lived like five or six different lives. Yeah. It's and you're a relatively young man. So uh, the experiences, you know, you touched on promoting parties when you were a teenager. Yeah. Tell us about that experience, promoting parties at clubs. So this, this is good because, you know, people need to hear how important it is to be curious and find out what's going on. A neighbor of mine used to receive these records by mail and sometimes they used to drop them off in front of his door. And I was curious, I was like, why is he getting records in front of his door? Like, what's, what's, what's this about? So I ended up knocking on his door and asking him some questions and telling him that I was interested in finding more about it. And he was into promoting parties. He was with, at that time, he was with an organization called Giant Step. And so he let me, he, he introduced me to some people that were doing something called Lyricist Lounge. So Lyricist Lounge was a showcase that happened at different venues, but Lyricist Lounge was also born in the Lower East Side on Orchard Street in a storefront, a little space where artists used to come through and perform like Most Def, Talib Kweli, like different artists used to like freestyle. Um, and so I connected with them. Man, it's even, even deeper than that because I had a public access show that I used to do called My Life Television. And so once my neighbor introduced me to a few people that were in that world of music and promotions, I started wanting to get my own show and start interviewing people because I was curious. Like that first curiosity of seeing the record being placed in front of the door led me to ask questions. So then I started walking around with a camera and then I started video recording people in parties, asking them questions, DJs, MCs, graffiti artists, and so My Life Television was on public access on Mondays and Tuesdays. So that led me to continue to further ask questions about how can I become a promoter? Because I wanted to be able to get into the parties because at that time I wasn't really in the parties because I was, I was outside because I was still too young. I was about 15 years old. And then I started handing flyers out and then that's when I started getting more involved. And once I got inside is when I started talking to the main promoter and then I would ask them, can I introduce the artists that are performing because I see that nobody's introducing them, they're just jumping on the stage. So I started doing some research, I became a host of these parties and I became a host of these shows that were at locations like SOBs, Tramps, uh, Vinyl, uh, 
the supper club, like all of these like uh, sticky mics. Um, yeah, so so many different um, parties and venues, and I I just became like a host for these um, for these shows, and so from there, I started meeting the artists, having conversations with them. I started you know getting to know them and and what inspired them. I started writing my own rhymes. I started getting into like emulating different artists that were out there and like learning how to the cadences and the different flows. So Giant Step is DJs and a live band improvising together. So I became a host of Giant Step and then naturally I was like improvising with the band and the DJ and then I started writing my own rhymes. So I started recording my own stuff. And eventually that led me to recording music with other artists, performing with other artists. This is, I'm talking about in the early 90s. This is like known as the golden era. So you had like Far Side would come out here to perform, Souls of Mischief would come out here to perform. You know, you had like all, everybody was trying to like find their way. You had Nas coming into Tramps and, and Biggie Smalls and all of these artists. I was around all of that. Everyone like was just like trying to figure it out. And I was just known as the host or later on that kid that's in all the videos. And how that came about is because I was the host and then people were very comfortable being around me and I was kind of like, one of the only cats in that time that had a big afro and I was like my personality and I was always like bugging out on stage. So eventually I started meeting different groups and, and different artists like Diggable Planets, like The Roots. You know, this was at a time when The Roots were trying to get signed and they were coming all the way from Philly and they would come out here and, and they would get their uh, MCing on and they would do their live shows and I met you know Quest Love and Tariq and and we would just like be kicking it and we just became friends because we were constantly seeing each other and funny story about Quest is that I remember him always telling me he's like he's like man he's like I gotta braid my hair because every time I wear the afro everybody thinks that it, that I'm you because I because I was in a lot of videos at that time so it just became a thing. Like I was in, in dozens of videos, like a variety, like from Madonna to Little Planets to De La Soul, like Eric um, from EPMD, like all types of artists would just like ask me to be in their video or directors would be like, yo, we want you to be in a video. So much so that Quest had a joke with uh, another, um, producer slash director, um, uh, uh, Charles Stone III, and when they did the video for What They Do, which was, it was kind of like a spoof video that they were making fun of like different things that artists do in videos that it's like with the fake lightning or the drinking, you know, apple cider instead of Moet and things like that. And then they would like put like these subtitles under. So when they had a scene with me in it, they added the subtitle, how does this guy get in all the videos? And that became a thing like, yeah, man, how does he get in all the videos? 
And it was just simple. It was just me always like being in different spots. And I was like everywhere because I just always like to connect with people. And then that was my whole thing about bringing community together. It always tied into community because I was always just like, yo, I need to meet this person. And then I would connect this person with this person. And I became this natural human bridge that I am today. But eventually, My Life Television, which that was when I was interviewing people, but I also used to do sketches in the show. So I used to do a lot of improvising in the show, like, you know, just like funny sketches and just bugging out with people. We got an opportunity. I say we, because it's Wordsworth is an underground MC and Lyricist Lounge. At the time, I was also hosting Lyricist Lounge shows that happened throughout the city and I was always around. We all had an opportunity to present an idea to some networks that were looking for some fresh creative ideas. And we ended up coming together, rehearsing, and creating what was known as a lyrical sketch. And that became the pitch that we did live for MTV executives who basically flew us out to California so that we can perform in front of these people and kind of like show them what we do. So we created some lyrical sketches, we wrote them together and ended up performing them. And we landed a, a, a pilot um, at MTV called Lyricist Lounge Show. And that ended up turning into two seasons of having so much fun with a bunch of different artists that came through. Like we ended up being able to write for Snoop Dogg, Most Def, um, Erica Badu, Common, like all of these artists because we not only were on-screen talent, but we were also producers and writers on the show. So it was just amazing to like hear people like reciting things that we wrote or ideas that, that we came up with. So, I mean, I'm living in California at this time. Now I'm telling you like, that's why it just jumps all over the place because it's so many different lives that I've lived I'm in California for like two years. We're doing a show out there in front of a live audience. It's beautiful, it's amazing. I'm getting to connect with so many different artists and and I'm doing what I love. I come back to New York and then I get a call from A.B. Quintanilla, who is, see, I'm, I'm I'm going forward, but this happened before, so I'm just, I'm telling you how my life, my life is all over the place. So I'm in, Cal, I'm, in, I'm in California, but now we take it to Texas, to Corpus Christi, Texas. And I'm working with A.B. Quintanilla, who's the producer and the brother of Selena Quintanilla, um, Tex-Mex singer. And he's coming up with his own band and he wants to collaborate. So he found me through a magazine called Urban Latino Magazine. And I end up going to Corpus Christi, Texas to record music for the debut of his group called the Cumbia Kings. So I ended up being able to write and be able to use my vocals. One of those songs is called Together. I ended up being able to collaborate on a track with Roger Troutman from Zap Mama. And that was like amazing because it's like, how does this happen? I don't know. I'm just like going with the flow and just being who I am. So that album does really well. I get some recognition. 
I end up uh, traveling overseas with another band called King Chango from Venezuela. This band does Latin ska music. So I end up being able to write on their album and they are signed. <laughs> this is like all over the place, but uh, King Chango are a Latin ska group. So I end up have being able to write in Spanish and in English, but they're signed to a label called Luacabop, which is David Burns record label. So there's a connection there. And it's all New York City for me because that's, this is where I'm from. And these are people tapping into energy that I'm just putting out there. So I'm just a kid traveling and, and doing all these things. I end up getting a call to go in a studio with a group from Japan called Mondo Grosso. And that was a plug that I got from Giant Step. And I end up recording a song with Mondo Grosso that does well in Japan and I kind of become known out there. Along this time, here comes a producer slash promoter from Israel and he wants to bring me to Israel and he got some type of deal with Pringles Potato Chips who became the sponsor of this tour, it's like a hip hop tour. I end up being able to travel to Israel to go to Haifa, Holong, Hatzor, Jerusalem, uh, kibbutz, like all these like com communes. And I end up being able to perform with a band, but it's not a band that I bought with me from New York. It's actually a band from Israel who's an unknown band that's working with me at the time doing a, a fusion of Latin, hip hop, and I'm performing in all these places out there. I was out there for like 17 days. It's beautiful, like the experience. I end up finding out later on that they become a huge phenomenon in Israel. Their name is Hadag Nahash, and they're like well-known group. So it literally is like a movie because I'm like looking at it now and just like trying to go back and it's just like so much stuff has happened but it's just random, it's, it, it seems random, but, and the way I'm telling it may sound random as well, but they're just like experiences, like many experiences that I've had that kind of shape me who I am today, because I haven't even gotten into the activism part. Right. You know? And I think, I think you said it best, that you like to think of yourself as a bridge. Yeah. You know, so, you're out there, you're trying to get on the promote, trying to get a couple extra free records. Yeah, hard, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you make this connection, you know, you quash beefs in your neighborhood growing up, so you're a bridge between those two warring sides, mm -hmm. as it may have been in that moment, you know, and then ultimately you continue that, that process. Yeah. So, uh, so obviously it's a long journey that you've traveled uh, from bumping elbows with most death Questlove to Al Sharpton and Don King. Everyone knows you as power. Where does the power come from? So I ended up having to put baby before power and make it baby power when I was getting into music and hosting shows. 
But the name power was given to me by a mentor, an uncle who kind of watched what I was doing. And so it was a given name. It was like, you don't see or understand what you're doing right now, but the way you're able to move around in different parts of the community and bring people together, that's power. I'm gonna give you the name Power. That's gonna be your name, Power Refinement. And he was part of an organization called the 5% Nation. And they have attributes that they go by. And so Power Refinement is one of them and he felt that that fit me and I should carry that with me. So I accepted that and I continued on my journey, but I still felt like I wasn't quite there so I put the baby before power. So in a lot of the things that I explained earlier, you would, if you look it up, you would see it, it's under baby power because I, I didn't feel like I quite reached that. And also there's this Latin song by an artist called Hector Lavoe. And he says, todo poderoso es el Señor, meaning the all powerful is the almighty the source, that, ener that source of energy that we all tap into. So I was like, yeah, I mean, but at the same time, when I'm ready, then I'll, 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 I'll grab onto that name and then I'll start using it. So it kind of like took a little bit of time. Was and there then a turning point that you felt comfortable dropping the baby? Um, I, I don't remember an exact turning point. I just, it was like a feeling that I got from when I started doing a lot of work within community and I felt like, okay, I'm a little bit more mature now. I can really like back that up. Um, and it was more like a spiritual thing. Um, it, it could have possibly happened after my pops passed away because I felt like I needed to step up for my family and that takes power. And I, I really like felt like I had to like hold on to that. And it became, that became the person that I was at that time. And that was like part of my journey. It was, an, it was acceptance and dealing with that, which is a whole nother thing that I had to deal with, with family members and then coming to terms with how my pops passed away and that sort of thing. And, and I felt like I got through that. So that could, that could be one of the pivotal moments that, that caused that. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about him and your relationship. Yeah, so, so my dad was like my cheerleader. He was like my biggest fan, playing Little League Baseball. He would come to the park. He'd be like, get him, Tiger. I'd strike out. He'd be like, don't worry, you get him next time, Tiger. Same thing, strike out, always on my side, never made me feel bad, always encouraging me to do my thing. He used to always want to make a comeback in the ring. So my dad was a professional boxer. He was born in Santuce, Puerto Rico. He made his way to New York City, a few blocks down on, on Allen Street. That's where his family kind of migrated, Allen and, and Eldridge Street, Rivington. And he got recruited in, from the streets to kind of like start training at a boxing gym because he got into like some scuffles and some people like saw him and, and recruited him. And, he actually started training at a boxing gym on 14th Street that belonged to Cus D'Amato, who was a legendary boxing trainer known 
probably more for Floyd Patterson and Mike Tyson, um, discovering Mike Tyson in the Catskill Mountains. But before that, he had a boxing gym on 14th Street and my dad used to bring me there. My relationship with my dad is, is special because my dad was an artist, but he also dealt with a lot of demons because at one point in his life when he gave up boxing, he started drinking a lot. And it, it, it's a deep connection because it's later on when I realized that a lot of our people don't have the ear, someone to listen to them. They don't have the resources to really express where that pain is coming from. But when I replay it, I always used to hear him have this like yearning to get back into the ring. And then I started learning that my mom feared for his life and his mom feared for his life. So they kind of like teamed up to try to convince him to stop boxing. And that's because at that time when he was boxing, which we're talking about 60s, 70s, 80s, like that era, there was a lot of mob um, fixed fights. And it's not like fixed fights like today. It's fixed fights like they really threaten your life. They really go into the locker room and pull out weapons and really tell you fourth round, you got to take a dive and that kind of thing. And he experienced that a lot. He was kind of like a journeyman. So in Customato's gym, these people were not allowed to come in there because Cus didn't want to deal with the mob. He didn't want anything to do with them. So he tried to keep his, his fighters away from them. But when Cus wasn't around, they made their way into the gym. And so my, my dad used to explain those things to me. But he even brought me to the gym a couple of times as, you know, when I'm like a baby, I'm, I'm young. But I remember, I remember the smell of the gym was like really grungy. You know, I remember like seeing how, you know, the, the floor was like moldy. And like it was like a real hardcore locker rooms, rusty, you know, people sparring. You see like blood flying and sweat and, and spit. It was like real old grungy New York style pine saw smell, Clorox smell. And I remember just being there, just watching my dad sparring and cheering him on the same way he would cheer me on. So it was kind of like, I knew that I had this connection with my dad because he was an artist. I'm an artist, but he was a different kind of artist. You know, he was an artist in the ring. Like that was his thing and that was his calling, but he didn't have that support. So I, 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 I empathize with him. Like, I, I, I understood where he was coming from when he would tell me those stories. And it wasn't only until later on that I really understood why he ended up committing suicide. It's because he didn't have that resource. He didn't have that person to listen to him. So he turned to drinking and, and always dreamt that one day he would make that comeback. So that's my connection to my dad is so powerful because it wasn't probably to like maybe four years ago that I may have come to terms with how he ended his life. But it was like, I felt why he did it, you know? Whereas before I was like mad at him. I was like, you know, that was my biggest cheerleader. He left me. I used to play him my songs. You know, he was somebody that, you know, he would be dancing, like listening to my songs. And I was like, damn, like, you know, that's, he, he gets it, he understands. Whereas a lot of other people in my family, they kind of like, oh, you need to, you know, 
be a doctor, be this, be that, whatever, like they don't understand, right? Like one of the lyrics in my song is like, I'm about to cut my family ties because they don't really understand like what I'm going through, you know? And so that even caused me to not want to go to family functions because all you hear is like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing with yourself? What are you doing with your life? They don't understand the life of an artist or, or how I am just like being, you know, all over the place. Um, but my dad did understand that. And so I, I always tap into that energy and I got him tattooed. Actually, when I went to Corpus Christi, Texas is when I got this tattoo done because Selena is tattooed on A.B. Quintanilla's arm, his sister, and it looks just like her. And so I asked A.B. after we, a recording session to take me to the guy that did it. And I asked my mom to send me my dad's picture by mail and got it done. So this is the hand that I write and I hold the mic with. And so he's always with me. He's always connected to me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my connection to my dad. And, and, and here we are inside of what is now a boxing gym. And I always think that if my dad was here physically, he'd be here training kids and, and training people and, and that's his passion. So it's not by coincidence that I ended up in this, in this space. All right, Power, so we talked a little bit about the building that we're in, you know, and you said it's not a coincidence that your relationship with your father centered around a boxing gym. And here we are talking in a boxing gym, which has also been the hub for you and your community work. And I want to get into that, but first, tell us a little bit about Overthrow for the folks that don't know about this building and the history. Yeah, so the history of this building is built around activism because in the 60s, this was the headquarters for the Youth International Party and that was led by Abby Hoffman. And so in this building, a lot of artists and activists used to meet up and they used to plan protests and marches around the city and around the country. Um, with music, they, do, they used to do a lot of theatrical protests but this building was also a publishing house. So there was a magazine that was born out of here called the Yipster Times. And that was a counter, it was a counterculture magazine. Um, it was talking about different things that the media wasn't covering. And so they were basically telling their stories and, and the stories that were seldom heard about around the world, that was happening around the world. And so the Yipster Times, there was a writer for the Yipster Times named Tom Facade who started High Times Magazine in this building on the third floor. And so to differentiate Yipster Times with High Times, they changed the name Yipster Times to Overthrow. So this was a meeting place for a lot of activists. It said that you know members of the Black Panther Party, the New York chapter used to meet here, um, right across the street at CBGB. So it said that bands used to come here and perform and different artists used to rehearse and they rehearsed across the street as well because they they had a space over there um, they were this building the people that um, that held it were really big in the marijuana um, legalization of marijuana so that whole movement and um, I remember being at Washington Square Park back in the days and they were part of setting up a lot of these rallies and these protests um, all the way from like the 80s um, they would like do this thing called the March of Fifth Avenue. They had um, different bands performing for this thing called Rock Against Reagan, against Vietnam. So 60s, 70s, and 80s, they, they had a lot of 
things that they were doing um, to protest things that were happening um, in the community and abroad, and they used the magazine to tell those stories. So this building is very historical. So once again, there's another connection, you know, and this is prior to it being turned into a boxing gym. This we're talking about, like, when I first stepped foot into this building, it wasn't a boxing gym. It actually was the original headquarters of our running community, the Bridge Runners, and we used to meet downstairs in the basement. I didn't know the history of the space even back then. So when I eventually started learning about it, I was like, wow, another connection, because here I am, an activist, I'm an advocate. I, you know, I started be, being an advocate when I used to hear my mom speaking on the phone and people on the other line were kind of like making fun of her, so I had to like, she only spoke Spanish, so I had to become a translator and, and I learned how to deal with different telephone companies or different people that were like calling like to, to inquire about when they were gonna get their bills paid or whatever. Um, so I became, I started learning how to advocate for people. I started going to appointments for my mom and, and seeing how people looked at her funny because she didn't understand certain things. So that's kind of like another thing that, that I became like early on. And so this building's history of it being like an activist hub and then how artists used to come here and converge and, and set up different events, it just became like a thing like, wow, this is dope. Like I'm, I'm in this space and athletes, right? We're runners and we're using the space and this was our, our headquarters. It wasn't until there was like a, a company that was renting the space upstairs and when they left, then that's when Joey, who basically founded this place, had to figure out how are we gonna make money to pay the rent because we're the running community, we're downstairs pretty much just hanging out and this is our headquarters. So he was into boxing and got into boxing through uh, Mendez Boxing Gym and that's kind of like how his love um, turned into, from, for boxing, um, he had a passion for it and his, uh, this idea flourished where he was like, I wanna turn this place into a boxing gym and maybe that can help us keep the space. And so eventually what you see now was you know, created, but it was created out of the spirit of fighting for something, right? Because within the spirit of the Yippies, the Youth International Party, who were about revolution and Abby Hoffman, one of his quotes is, the only way to start, the only way to fight a revolution is to start your own. So it was like always within that spirit of fighting for something. So here we are in overthrow because overthrow became the name of what the Yipster Times was. So it's kind of like all brought together and keeping within the history of this space, which is another thing that's important. Okay, so you're always serving as a bridge it seems through different parts of life, through different communities, uh, people in music, people who are artists, the fight community. And here we are at Overthrow, where you've launched this community refrigerator outside, the first ever plant-based community fridge in New York. Mm -hmm. So talk, I guess, a little bit about tying in, you know, you're fighting for the community, quite literally, here in this space, and doing it so the same outside in the front when you organize these runs mm -hmm. 
for whatever the cause may be in that particular day. Uh, so I guess just talk to us a little bit about the tie-ins. Mm -hmm. So the community overthrow and now with the overthrow community. So I always saw myself as using my platform for something that's bigger than me. And one of the things that I always like to say is get away from the ego system and get into this ecosystem or get back to the ecosystem. Because I believe that it's important for us to work together and get away from the illusions and the distractions and the lies and reprogramming our minds and to get back into humanity. So being an advocate for community in my community in the Lower East Side I was always like learning about different groups and I felt like there wasn't enough people out there that were really caring about the people the government gives out a lot of money to a lot of nonprofit organizations that are supposed to be doing the right thing there's it, there's positions in government who get paid to help people out that are in need and they don't do the right thing so into like grassroots organizing. I started learning a little bit more about that. I really, really turned the page during Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico because I started learning how people use these disasters to profit, right? I started learning about what's disaster capitalism. And going to Puerto Rico, I started seeing that there were a lot of these organizations that were collecting funds but yet they weren't going to the people that needed the help. But us in New York City, we collaborated, we did fundraisers, we did these drives, and we were able to ship containers out to Puerto Rico, go to Puerto Rico to meet the containers and make sure that we went into the mountains and got the people the help that they needed. And I learned a lot about mutual aid in Puerto Rico because they were actually doing mobile kitchens where they had vehicles and they were driving around to cook and feed the people. And this is the same people that are doing this work. It wasn't the government of Puerto Rico and it wasn't the government here of the United States because Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. And so there's so much corruption that goes on and has been going on for years. And so that was an example for me to see how the people can truly save the people. And that's why I say solo el pueblo, salva el pueblo, because that's exactly what I experienced and I was a part of. So I learned a lot from those experiences and then the experiences of me growing up and seeing how politics plays a role in who gets funding and who doesn't get funding. And so within all of that, once again, I become this bridge and I bring it all together. And then I start doing mutual aid work in my community and then we start doing these give backs for the kids and we start doing this programming where we try to teach the kids meditation, take them out on runs. And then we, we have to use the spaces that we're provided. So it's a blessing that I actually am able to be the community director and the community bridge at Overthrow because I can use this space for the things that I love to do and that's bringing community together. So within that is how I learned about the mutual aid work how important it is for us to do it and connect with different people from different boroughs, right? So even throughout the protests that we had this last summer, I started connecting with people from different boroughs that were into the same work that I do. And so it became from protesting to pivoting into doing community work, right? And then throughout the pandemic, 
we start noticing again who are the communities that are neglected, who are the communities that are affected the most by this pandemic, and as people with pre-existing conditions, and as people that don't get the funding from the government. And so bringing all of that together is like I start feeling like I need to do more, and I t need to get more involved. And so then that's when I start doing the work within my own community. I start giving out food. I start asking people to donate so that I can go shopping for people. And then I start hearing about more organizations that get all of this funding, don't care about the people, and then contract some other side company to make scraps and nasty food for our people and just throw it at them. And food is left in the lobbies, in front of people's doors. They're just literally throwing food away. And when I'm learning about all of that stuff, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Something's got to change, you know? And then I start thinking, how, what else can I do other than delivering food to people Maybe I can be an advocate of how important it is for us to eat healthy. Because another thing I started learning is that when I go to these people's houses and they start telling me about the, the diseases that they have or the sicknesses or, or how they, they feel, and, and it's all because the medicine that they show me that they're taking, right? Because this medicine is supposed to cure them from cholesterol, if they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, if they have diabetes, like all of these lies that are told to them when food is the true medicine. And so I'm like, I'm torn because here I am delivering food to people and it may not be the best food, but that's what I'm getting from these different organizations. And I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna get out of this system because I know there's a better way. So the idea of having a community fridge, I knew there were multiple community fridges in the city, but I said, I want to do a community fridge that focuses on healthy plant-based vegan food. And I say that because a lot of activists like Dick Gregory, who was a vegan, always spoke about the importance of healing yourself with food, right? And in our communities, there are food deserts. There's the stigma that if you don't make a certain amount of money, then you shouldn't have access to this food. So I was like, we're in the world, but not of it. We may be in the system, but we can change the system by creating our own, right? And that's when I talk about the ecosystem because that's what mutual aid is. So I was like, as difficult as it may seem for us to do something like this, I need to start reaching out to people and seeing who can help. I used to go to this, well, used to, I still go, but unfortunately throughout the pandemic, it was a little slower, but there's a friend of mine who has a restaurant called the Organic Grill, OG. OG is an old school or organic grill, is a vegan spot. So uh, Vlad, who runs the Organic Grill, introduced me to several different people that were into the vegan lifestyle. And one of those people is Eloisa Trinidad, who I started collaborating with as soon as we met because we had the same passion for teaching our people how to eat healthy and then about food justice and about the liberation of all beings, including animals. So within that, a matter of two weeks meeting, we decided to launch the fridge. And we got it, we got the fridge, but 
now we were being met with, oh, it's going to snow. Maybe you should delay it. I don't know if you should do it. And then on the other side, people are saying, oh, that's it's, it's tough. If you're just going to do plant-based food, that's pretty expensive. You don't know how you're going to you know, sustain it. We did it anyway, right? Because it was an idea that was born out of the frustration of all these other organizations that are hoarding the resources, that have all the money, but we're gonna show them that we can still do it and little by little we can grow it and have the support from other people and that, that will show the need is real. And so we set out to do it and we presented the idea and we did it in front of Overthrow because I'm the community bridge at Overthrow and this was a space that we already were doing community events here you know we had cbgb's is down the block so we had john joseph who's a punk rock artist slash iron man vegan who taught kids inside the ring how to make tofu scramble because we brought a bunch of kids here we took them on a run downstairs they meditated they came up here and learned how to make tofu scramble tasted it probably for the first time a lot of them and so they were able to take that back to their community and their friends and tell them that this tastes good because that's another thing people think like, oh, healthy food doesn't taste good. That's a lie that they tell our people. Like our communities are filled with fast food, are filled with all the stuff that's not good for you because it's a cycle, right? It's a system that keeps our people oppressed and sick. So. What we're doing is radical because it's, it's love. There's a lot of love in it and it's needed. So that's why it's the first plant-based community fridge. Like you would think like, damn, yo, how, out of all these fridges in New York City, this is the first one? Yeah, because it does take a lot for you to make this, to make this fridge all plant-based because you literally have to engage people and talk to them and teach them what is allowed to be put into this refrigerator? Because we're no longer accepting scraps. This is not charity. You know, that's another misconception. It's like beggars can't be choosers. Let's give them whatever. If, the, if, it's, if it's expired or it's about to expire, we don't want it. If it's leftovers, we don't want it. Because would you eat something that's expired? Would you eat whatever you, you putting in that fridge, you should say that this is something that I would eat. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times, if you're not monitoring the fridge and watching what is happening with it, it either gets left abandoned or people just put anything in there. And you gotta check people, bro. Because this is not, this is not something that you, you going to, you going along with a system that was created. You, you are doing your own thing. This is the people creating their own system. Right? And the way we're going to make sure that our people don't get sick is by taking care of what goes into the fridge and, just, and also educating people as to what goes into the fridge. And I have to check people a lot of times because they'll bring stuff and say, oh, I came to donate to the fridge. And I ask them three simple questions. One, is it in a package unopened? Two, is it expired? And three, is it all plant-based? And I asked them that so that they can analyze for themselves if what they're dropping off should be dropped off in, on, on the fridge. Because a lot of times it is scraps. A lot of times it is something that is expired. 
and our people deserve more than that because that food, healthy food, is a human right. It sh everyone should have access to it, you know? So I'm very passionate about it because it, it just gets me frustrated when people think that they could just like, you know, throw scraps at people because they're going through a tough time. If you want people to take one thing away from this about you, who power is, what would that be? Power is a spiritual being, and power just wants the world to understand that there's a better way. And that better way is getting away from the distractions. That, w that better way is getting away from the so-called norm. That better way is unlearning the lies that were taught. And once again, is getting away from that ego system and getting into the ecosystem because it's much bigger than just one individual. It's about all of us together coming, coming together to be able to help each other out, support each other, love and care for one another, and really be present. Because throughout all of this, the fear mongering is what paralyzes people. When people are afraid to change, because people think that the way they were living in the past is normal. And so they keep yearning for that. And they get tricked into thinking, whoa, I can't wait to get back to normal. No, Mother Earth is speaking to us and we have to assist the shift in the direction that it needs to go. And that's the power that we have. So I hope that people learn to tap into that and really look into their inner mirror and not allow themselves to get distracted because the distractions are back. They were away for a while and you, you could have really like made that, that change. Now it's a little bit tougher, but we still can do it because this is the moment right now. Throughout our history, we're alive in this moment for a reason. So we have to take heed and we have to tap into that energy and follow our guide, our true intuition. Let your soul lead the way. So I want people to tap into that spiritual energy that we all are connected to. And that's how we're gonna be a better people. That's how we're gonna live better. And that's how we're gonna learn how to live with each other.